Beloved in the Lord, we have the mind of Christ. We're called to share in Christ's attitudes. We're called to share in Christ's mission. That looks like a dedicated inquiring into Scripture and in order to receive the wisdom we need for those purposes. In order to receive the wisdom for, we, we need for practical application to our lives as Christians. And in this way, through the work of the Spirit, we build up the church of God. And when the Christian immerses himself in that calling... In that calling to have the mind of Christ, he may trust that no mere man may judge him. No one may judge him. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 was all about. The spiritual man whom no one may judge. But the Corinthians, and with the Corinthians, many in the history of the church are not ready to take that road. In their lives, their own flesh becomes too dominant. They forget that through the Spirit, they have the mind of Christ. And if they pursue it, it really belongs to them. Instead, they are distracted by the glamour of the world. We have the mind of Christ, brothers and sisters, and that's our theme for today. First, we'll see leaving infancy behind. There's a call to the Corinthians to leave infancy behind. And then a call to mutually build the kingdom of God in Christ. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? When Isaiah originally wrote that, he expected the answer, no one. But in Christ, in Christ, we may know the mind of the Lord. We have the connection to the mind of God. Through word and spirit, we can exercise the wisdom of God that God calls us to live by. If we're willing to walk in step with the Spirit, if we're willing to submit ourselves to the Word that God has given us, we will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Christ, by His work of love, shares His maturity and wisdom with us, His children. And in principle, in principle, every Christian has this wisdom. Through the Spirit, we exercise it. At the beginning of your Christian life, though, you're not there yet. Even if, in principle, you have access to that wisdom, you need to begin by learning the basics. You need to humble yourself before Spirit-filled men and learn from them about the teaching of God. And I, brother, says Paul, could not address you. He's, he's talking about when he came to see them first when he brought the gospel to them, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. There's a little bit of tough truth here for the Corinthians. 
You began in infancy just like everybody else. You didn't come to Christ because you were so particularly wise. It's good for us to remember as well. Where did, he, where did we begin? It's interesting, too, that Paul refers to the Corinthians as fleshly. We might even say worldly. The last chapter, he's talked about the natural man or the unspiritual man. But he uses the word fleshly here, and there's a reason for that. He does not call them unspiritual because that would mean they did not have the spirit, and that is not true. Once they believed, they had the spirit of God. But in terms of turning away from the worldly ways to spiritual ways, they are still infants. They still depend on their own flesh. They need to be weaned from the wisdom or the way of the world. They still need immersion in the foundations of the Christian faith. And maybe not even immersion, they need to understand how those foundations of the Christian faith apply to everything that they do. They had to begin with milk, the basics of Christian doctrine. We might say that they had to understand the basic truths of the Apostles' Creed, who the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, what Jesus did and what we receive from Jesus. They are not yet ready to become productive in the house of God until that foundation is laid for them. And we all begin here. We need the milk of Christ before we can graduate to greater understanding. That's an important and humbling reality that is prerequisite to receiving greater maturity. We need that humility, that humility before God and His Word so that we may be lifted up. The problem with the Corinthians is that they have remained infantile. And even, <clears throat> and even now you are not yet ready. That is, they are not ready to receive a deeper understanding of how to live before God. And Paul explains why, for you are still of the flesh, you are still worldly, for there is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And in order to prove that, Paul goes back to the factionalism that he talked about in chapter 1. If you've read Corinthians, you'll, you'll know chapter 1, where one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. And Paul asks, when you say that, are you not being merely human? And the phrase merely human, again, is here is a, a opposed to moved by the Spirit. Though the Corinthians have the Spirit, that many are failing to walk in step with that Spirit. So what does it mean to act according to the flesh? Acting according to the flesh really includes anything that goes against the Word of God, anything that contradicts one's identity in Christ. Here in Corinth, the evidence of that fleshly thinking is the type of division that characterizes Corinth. And it's not merely the fact that there are factions. It's not merely just that there are cliques in the church. Later, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, I hear that there are divisions 
among you, and I believe in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. God is using the divisions in Corinth to test the genuineness of their faith. So while God warns against divisions, in his divine purposes he also uses division in order to test genuine faith. The problem is that when factions do develop, they turn against each other in jealousy and strife rather than working toward the mindset of Christ. In turn, they do not protect themselves from those things that truly destroy the church, permitting sexual perversion in their midst, failing to separate themselves from the worship of idols, and failing in preserving the memory of sensual Christian truths like the resurrection. These factions become embedded into the life of the church and harden the divisions that are between Christians, all because they have lost their focus on the Spirit and the wisdom that comes from the Spirit. Christ warns his disciples in the Gospels, do not lord it over one another like the Gentiles do. The church should not be characterized by the grasping for power that characterizes factions within history. The church is to work together on the mission of the Lord. When disagreements arise, we are called to begin with gentleness and a desire to build bridges. Power struggles are antithetical to that work because of the character of Christ's mission. One which is taken with the desire to humble oneself before God. And in that humbling, to look for exaltation. In Corinth, those power struggles take the form of identifying with the figures of Paul and Apollos. Peter is mentioned in the first chapter as well. But it seems that the biggest problem is between the followers of Paul and Apollos. The followers of Apollos may well have been using their identification with the person of Apollos in order to reject the things Paul says. There's nothing wrong with preferring Apollos to Paul, but to set them in opposition to one another, to use their names in order to satisfy the lust of the flesh over another faction, is a failure of maturity. They show no desire to grow in Christ. It shows no recognition of who Paul and Apollos are. Identifying with various figures could have also advanced your social status in Corinth. We can imagine that those who identified with Apollos would have felt higher status than those who identified with Paul, merely because Apollos was such a gifted speaker. In turn, those who identified with Paul would have responded with jealousy and anger. How do we avoid the path of Corinth? How do we avoid a return to our infancy in Christ, forgetting or failing to pursue the wisdom that comes through seeking the Spirit? One of the deep problems in Corinth is an overvaluation of worldly status and worldly reputation. That's what's behind the Corinthian problem of personality. Just like our world, there are things that make you high status and low status. At the same time, 
Of course, in our world, it's different. There are different rules and cultural norms that would make you high status and low status. And in Corinth, that high status and low status is often very much connected to who your patron is, who you connect yourself with. We should begin by recognizing that high status is a good thing, and the Bible presents it as something desirable and something to attain. But it's also something that's easily overvalued. And that's a big part of what's going on in Corinth. As in a Christian in Corinth, you need to be willing to do low-status things like accept a slave as your brother. You can't participate in a high-status thing like the pagan festivals. As a Christian today, you need to be willing to state opinions that might be considered low-status such as the truth that abortion is murder, or the history that is found in Genesis, or confessing God's design for male and female. Those are opinions that might make you low status. But what else makes you fear for your reputation? Particularly, what connections in the body of Christ make you worry about your status? What low-status things are you called to do and are hard for you to accept? Status can make us lose the big picture, whether we identify as high-status or low-status, and and especially in in our world, low-status can have its own pride as well. Rather than investing in Christ and His church, we invest in our group whether it's family or an ideology or a socioeconomic group, such as small business workers or public sector workers. It's natural, often good, to want what is good for our group, but to overinvest can make us lose the big picture of the church of God. Neither should we so invest in a group in society that we're not willing to risk anything for the sake of the church. Paul forces us to ask the question, am I prioritizing my status in Christ and in Christ's body before I prioritize my status in society? Our lives must be centered on Christ, and being centered on Christ, we also labor for the good of Christ's body, the church. There will be differences in the church. We are, after all, a body, many parts that work together, but many parts, many different parts. Our families, ethnicity, professions, all contribute to the functioning of that body. Unfortunately, different things can arise that cause the body to turn against each other. COVID-19, for example, didn't cause the differences that we experience among ourselves, Rather, it revealed those differences. Yet in all this, in all this, we want to continue to focus on the mind of Christ. The way the desire for status works in Corinth is a focus on particular leaders in the church. And again, that focus on leaders is based on the desire for status. After all, if you connect yourself to someone important and smart that allows you to share in the importance and wisdom of that person. If we can compare Paul and Apollos, we we can see where this type of factionalism might develop. 
Apollos is a gifted speaker, Paul less so. Some Corinthian members wanting to be cool might attach themselves to Apollos and look down on those who admire Paul. In turn, those who admire Paul look at those who follow Apollos with disdain because Paul was the original, the planter. Corinth attached itself to the persons of Paul and Apollos and so loses out on learning maturity. We do need to depend on someone for wisdom and maturity, but that person is our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants to wean the Corinthians, even of his own personality, and point them to Christ. That's why several times in Corinthians he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. The Corinthians themselves have to discern how Paul imitates Christ. We all need to be careful about over-relying, even upon a parent, to determine what we believe. We're all called to take ownership of our own beliefs through our relationship with Christ and say we imitate our mentors as they imitate Christ. We're free to look at the whole history of the doctors and ministers of the church to learn and grow from. We honor them, but we do not identify ourselves with them. The most important way to avoid childish, though, is to devote ourselves to the kingdom of God and the upbuilding of the body of Christ. The best way to avoid negative status-seeking is to engage in the positive work of building up the church of God. Do this according to the calling that the Lord has given you. Seek to understand what the church is all about and how by your actions through your life you can promote the mission of God. That's the underlying point of Paul, starting at verse 5 of our text. Paul wants us to participate in the life of the church with the mindset of Christ. That brings us to our second point. Mutually building the kingdom of Christ. The problem with over-investing in the person of Paul or over-investing in the person of Apollos problem with investing over much in, in our own status or our own group is a failure to recognize what we really are. It's a failure to recognize what the leaders of the church really are. There is a place to honor your leaders, but at the same time we need to understand that their honor is all due to grace. In the big picture, they are expendable. They are not essential for salvation. Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as a sign to each. Paul and Apollos are servants of God. Paul's use of the word term servant is to demonstrate to the Corinthians his lowly position. He's not the landowner. God is the landowner. He's the servant in God's world. Not only is he not a landowner, but he's involved in the day-to-day -day menial labor of farming, something that could be done by anyone. You see, the intensive labor of, of farming was not viewed highly among those who are high status in Corinth. So Paul is again referring to himself and Apollos as people of low status. He says, I planted Apollos water. 
Paul planted the church in Corinth, and Apollos was used to help it grow. But, says Paul, it didn't have to be me. I'm expendable. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Only God can give the growth. It doesn't take the special wisdom of the Corinthians in order to make the church flourish. It's the work of God. And if the Corinthians don't realize that, they will only reverse the work that has been done. If they want the Corinthian church to flourish, they have to humble themselves before God and His wisdom. They need to understand that they are expendable. In fact, says Paul, I don't know why you're making such a big distinction between me and Apollos. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Apollos and Paul are working together for the gospel. They are not divided. If anybody has the right to judge their work, it is God who will give to each their wages. Paul's words here are so radical. They get to the very heart of the pride that characterizes our fleshly nature. We love to criticize, and we love to criticize ministers, our leaders in general. There is a place to do so, but we need to do so with gentleness and respect, knowing that God is judge and and aware that we will be judged by the same standard we apply to others. I'm speaking, of course, of ministers who are overall faithful. There are ministers who need to be removed from their position of power in the church as quickly as possible, but that's a different story. There's a humility here that is hard to grasp. I think we can truly say that we have a lot of work to imitate the type of attitude that Paul presents to us. The big thing to see here is the complementary nature of Paul's work and Apollos' work. Apollos waters what Paul has planted. Paul and Apollos are working on the same project, the church of Jesus Christ. Because it is Christ that motivates their work and the spirit that empowers them, these men hold each other in mutual respect. Paul's next words seem to take back some of the respect that he has taken away from himself. He says, we are God's fellow workers. God is at work, and Paul and Apollos work alongside God. It is because of God and the power of the Spirit that their work blossoms and grows. We can see at once Paul's recognition of his own weakness, the fact that that in his own flesh, he's worthless, expendable. But in God, through the power of the Spirit, he's a fellow worker of God, working alongside God, the Lord of the universe. And he recognizes Apollos as full fellow worker as well. No matter what the followers of Apollos might like to think of Paul or vice versa. They work in the church alongside God, and the church is God's field, God's building. The first picture should remind us of Israel, where God calls her a garden that he has planted in the land. Paul and Apollos are workers in the vineyard, tasked with presenting fruit to God, the owner of the vineyard. We can also think of the temple being built in the wilderness. 
They are the spirit-filled Bezalel and Aholiab working on the tabernacle in the wilderness. And this helps us understand what we are. We are the temple being built. We are the beautiful garden. As the church, we care for one another. We build each other up as living stones through the fruit of our good works, through adding to our midst new living stones and new branches. We are the body of Christ, in Christ, for Christ, in God, for God. That's why we don't count ourselves as in Calvin or in Luther or in any popular preacher today. Ultimately, we are in Christ, and that is the basis for treating one another with gentleness and respect, not in jealousy and strife. While these words primarily refer to Paul and Apollos, the leaders and ministers of the Church of Christ, Paul calls upon all the members of the body to build up the body according to the gifts that they, that they have been given. You can see that in all his letters. That means that whatever your status, whatever group you may feel you have more in common with, you are called to build up the whole body of Christ. The limits of that work of patience, encouragement, and exhortation are the limits of the body of Christ itself. We are called to have the mind of Christ, his hatred of evil, and his love of what is good, his desire for holiness and justice, and his mercy and patience for the struggling sinner. Let us submit ourselves to the wisdom of the Holy Spirit for that purpose. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen.